Is your money working as hard as it could be for your future? A decade ago, Robinhood changed the investment landscape when they pioneered commission-free stock trading. Today, they continue to offer innovative products to help users build a better financial future, like IRAs, ETFs, options for qualified traders, and much more. Take control of your financial future with Robinhood. Download the app or visit Robinhood.com to learn more. That's Robinhood.com. Disclosures. Investing involves risk. Other fees may apply. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIP. PC is a registered broker dealer. Good morning, Brew Daily Show. I'm Neil Fryman. And I'm Toby Howell. On today's pod, the same company that brought you Mickey Mouse and Lightning McQueen is now offering sports betting. Then you literally won't believe what a pet psychic charges to communicate with your furry little friends. It's Tuesday, November 14th. Let's ride. Toby, I came across this crazy stat. So a new NCIS spinoff is being released today, NCIS Sydney. And low-key, this franchise is ridiculously popular. More than 300 million people around the world watched some version of NCIS last year. And almost 1,000 episodes have been produced across the OG NCIS, NCIS Los Angeles, NCIS New Orleans, and NCIS Hawaii. This franchise has generated about $8 billion since it was first launched in 2003. What the heck? I would love to be the NCIS of podcasts. Just an under-the-radar juggernaut that doesn't need the recognition, doesn't need the awards, but just absolutely pulls in viewers. 1,000 episodes too neil can you imagine we get there we'll get there man 200 is coming up uh later this month i know i'm excited for that before we get into the news we have a quick word from our sponsor brex neil you spilled the beans about my pickleball shoe company yesterday and i had multiple people reach out to me on linkedin which is great for me and for brex because now I definitely need help managing my spend. Oh, so you're thinking about hiring some employees in your future? Well, Brex has great expense management software and corporate cards, so you can hook up your new workers in no time. So do you want to come work for me? Toby, I'm the one who hired you at the (laughs) brew. I don't think I can come work for you now, but shout out to Brex for helping you do your thing. Visit Brex.com or Toby's LinkedIn DMs for more info. Okay, the way that you watch sports may never be the same because today ESPN is launching its own betting app and a $1.5 billion partnership with Penn Entertainment. Sports gambling has been legal in the U.S. for years now, but ESPN getting into the game feels like a game changer. That's because ESPN, for all its recent struggles, remains the worldwide leader in sports and broadcasts games from college football to NBA basketball to Monday night football. Now that ESPN has its own betting app, you can be sure that betting will be front and center on its telecasts from now on. But the question on everyone's mind is whether ESPN Bet, as this app is called, can grab a piece of the sports betting pie in the United States. Right now, the industry is dominated by two giants, FanDuel and DraftKings, which collectively own more than 70% of the market. ESPN and Penn think by leveraging ESPN's massive distribution through TV, websites, fantasy apps, and on-air talent, they can become a major player in what is an absolutely booming industry. Toby, this thing is coming online in 17 states today. Will people bet through ESPN? I am a little skeptical, Neil, because ESPN Bet is acquiring uh, kind of Barstool's 3% share that they had in the market uh, before that partnership fell through. Um, And then Fox Bet is the reason why I'm skeptical on this, because they tried to launch a a betting service uh, under their kind of TV network, and that kind of failed. They they recently shut that down. And to be fair, ESPN is a much, much stronger brand than Fox Sports is, but it still shows kind of the perils of trying to cross over from pure entertainment 
entertainment, pure uh, sports media company into uh, the sports betting world. Yeah, I want to talk about how far how far a U-turn this has been for Disney. Disney, of course, owns ESPN. And on, as recently as 2019, CEO Bob Iger said that the company would never get into betting. And I kind of teased it at the top because Disney is supposed to be family entertainment. They make Mickey Mouse. They make animated movies. Uh, Disney Plus, their streaming network, is meant to be a family-safe uh, platform. But now they're getting into sports gambling, which is not legal, uh, you know, in most places, in certain places in the U.S., and it's certainly not legal for kids. And so this has just kind of a, been a massive pivot for ESPN and Disney, and I think it's because ESPN may not think it can survive or grow in a sports landscape that is now dominated by gambling money. Yeah. Uh, the synergies, though, Neil, you have to talk about the synergies. They're so delectable that I even had to use the word synergies. The fantasy angle to me is really big because ESPN's fantasy uh, sports players are growing 10% year over year. It's just this massive, massive industry. And so there's definitely this world where you open your fantasy football app, you see bets tailored to the players you own on your team. So, again, I can see why this feels like a match made in heaven. Also, ESPN really wants to leverage the personalities they have, uh, like the Pat McAfee's of the world where you tune into a, a broadcast and the, the broadcasters say, here, here's who I'm betting on today and you can tail their bets or, or fade their bets. So again, it makes so much sense on paper. It, it really will come down to, does this destroy any of kind of that brand equity that we've talked about? Because yeah, D Disney's been so protective of right. kind of their brand. And it's interesting that ESPN is getting into betting because ESPN, in addition to being a place where people talk, there's a lot of talking heads about sports is a news gathering organization. They have reporters and insiders, and there are a lot of ethical questions that are being asked about ESPN with that with its news gathering organization, how that interfaces and whether there will be conflicts of interest with gambling. And it's trying to get out ahead of that and it put out restrictions for the Adam Schefters of the world and the Woges of the world. The, for, for people who don't know, these are two people that cover the NBA and the NFL very intensely and they often break news that can change betting lines. So ESPN wants to put up some guardrails. But as we've seen in the past, there have been instances where Journalists that have been employed by gambling companies have moved betting lines and drawn a lot of scrutiny. Even if there wasn't any foul play involved, there's going to be a boundary that might be crossed at certain points. And ESPN needs to get ahead of that to maintain integrity. They need to uh, take a page from our books and say, not financial advisors, not sports betting advisors. I don't know if that's going to be enough. Show. There's a lot of money in this yeah. industry. All right, let's move on. If you're looking for a house right now and struggling to find one, blame Mr. and Mrs. Johnson, the nice boomer couple from down the street. Older buyers are dominating the U.S. housing market right now. This year, the median age for a repeat home buyer was 58 years old, according to a new report from the National Association of Realtors, up from 36 years old in 1981 when the survey first started. And even though I said blame Mr. and Mrs. Johnson, it might just be Miss Johnson you have a bone to pick. The share of recent home buyers who are married couples dropped to under 60% this year, the lowest level since 2010, and it's single women that are increasingly picking up the slack. If you were a single woman roughly 40 years ago, you'd be buying a house at the same rate as your single male counterparts, but now the rate for women is almost double that of men. And regardless of gender, you're definitely rich. The average home buyer's income jumped to $107,000 in 2023, up from 88,000 just a year earlier. Neil, I feel like none of this is especially surprising given the current vibes around the housing market. No, I want to talk about the effects of high mortgage rates and how that influenced payments because 
down payment surged because as as mortgage rates grew to 6% last year, for first-time buyers, down payments reached 8% of the total price, which is the highest rate since 1997, and 20% of buyers paid cash in 2023, all cash, and that's up from 13% in 2021. So you see the increase in down payments shows how people do not want as little of a mortgage to pay off as possible with rates surging as they were. Yeah, it is so funny to me that now that people uh, when people weren't spending all this money on, on Taylor Swift concerts, they weren't paying cash. And now that people are, they're starting to kind of bump that up a little bit. Um, and then we've also talked a little bit about what are the big disruptions that the housing market has come to reckon with in the post kind of COVID years is that a lot of people aren't moving as far from the previous homes as they did back in 2022. Uh, remote work seemed like it was going to be a really big part of a lot of people's lives. So people were moving to far and wide different parts of the country. But now the distance moved from the last home decreased from 50 miles to 20 miles, yeah. which has got a lot closer to the previous historic norm of 15 miles. So Yeah, that was interesting to me. I know. People really started moving far away, and they're like, wait a second, I want to be kind of closer to where I initially have been. Yeah, no, just to go back, just to tie this all together and go back to your original point about boomers uh, buying up houses, the, you know, they're really competing with the first-time buyer because they're all both going over the same type of house. The starter house for the first-time buyer is often the same type of house that baby boomers want to downsize to after mm -hmm. all the kids have moved out of the house. So there really is uh, you know, a lot of competition over the same type of smaller house. Maybe it's a one-story house. And if you're a seller and there's a lot, been a lot of competition for your house these days, you're probably going to go with the older buyer who has a lot more money, a lot more equity, can probably put a, a higher down payment down than the first-time buyer. And that's really squeezing these initial home buyers out of the market. Yeah. And I mean, speaking of just to tie a bow on it, first-time buyers are also getting older themselves. They clocking at 35 years old for a first house compared with 29 uh, years old in the early 1980s. So everyone's getting older. Everyone's looking for the same houses and no one can see. Will I own one. a house by 35? <laughs> Are you shaking the magic eight ball right now? That's three years from now. I think you got it, Neil. It depends where. <laughs> I, I do not see it in my future. I, I like renting. Okay. The number of international students in the U.S. boomed last year, and it might be the financial pick-me-up colleges need following a major COVID slump. Overall, the number of international students grew by 12% last year, the largest single year increase in more than four decades, according to a new report from the State Department and the Institute of International Education. Driving the surge was one country in particular, India. The number of Indian students soared 35%, becoming the second highest foreign population on U.S. campuses after China. Most of them are coming for grad school in programs like science, technology, and business. So why does this matter? Well, colleges love giving you free t-shirts, but they like international students even more. That's because these students pay mostly full tuition and the federal government estimates they pump $38 billion a year into the U.S. economy. But perhaps even more impactful over the long term for me is building the talent pipeline. When international students come to the U.S., they sometimes decide to stay here and create companies, play a huge role in our economy and society. Toby, it kind of flies under the radar, but one of the U.S.'s most legendary exports, up there with Hollywood and Coca-Cola, is our educational system. And it seems like that diploma made in the USA brand is still going really strong. Yeah, still super strong. But I also just want to give a shout out to India. In everything is coming up for India this kind of decade. Remember, India is riding this massive population boom. It's due to surpass China as the most populous country on the planet this year, according to a UN report. And its economy is also growing 
growing right alongside with it. It eclipsed the United Kingdom as the world's fifth largest economy, and it's got Germany at number four in its sights. And the IMF expects India's GDP to grow by almost 6% this year, which is the highest of, of the 30 largest economies. So all of this boom, all of this economic boom is kind of spilling over into this influx of international students going to America. Yeah, but they're coming to the U.S. They're not staying in India for grad school or school. So I think that that shows to the U.S.'s staying power as a yes. hub for education. Well, no, and it actually ties back to India's struggles to educate its workforce. According to NPR, the unemployment rate in India for college grads is 20%. So it, there's also just a lot of people. There's not m maybe enough jobs over there to support like this influx. But also, yeah, it goes to show that maybe India's higher education system isn't preparing the workforce in the same way that maybe uh, America's uh, college workforce or uh, education system is doing. And this is big for U.S. colleges because the number of kids from the U.S. going to colleges has remained low from COVID. Well, you know, a lot of people went remote during COVID for classes and they just haven't come back in a big way. We're still down 3.6% for freshman enrollment in 2023. So looking abroad and, you know, those numbers also fell off a cliff, especially mm -hmm. during COVID, because there were all these travel restrictions and no one came to the U.S. or yeah. no one really traveled anywhere for school or anything otherwise. So it's really important for the U.S. to get these numbers back mm -hmm. up. So it's very much a relief to do that. And I was just thinking about when we were talking about India and at the education system, people coming here, I just thought about all of the Fortune 500 companies yeah. that are run by Indian or Indian Americans now. And I was like, okay, what are their biographies? What, like, how did they get here? Turns out a lot of them came here for grad school. Sundar Pichai of Alphabet is one I was thinking of. He came here for grad school. Satya Dadella uh, of Microsoft came here. He went to University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee for grad school. And then Arvind Krishna, who's the CEO of IBM, also went to University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign Urbana for a PhD in electrical engineering. So this is a huge way to build yeah. our talent pipeline. I guess shout out to the Midwest higher education I was thinking system that too. because they're, they're, they're seem to be doing well. All right, now before we jump into the next half of our show, we're going to take a quick break. Exxon wants to power your vehicle, whether it's through gasoline or an electric battery. Yesterday, the fossil fuel giant said it was going to drill for lithium in southwest Arkansas in the hopes of becoming a major supplier for electric vehicle batteries by 2030. You might be thinking, Exxon, don't they drill for oil and gas? Yes, but they also are aware that the world will eventually ditch gasoline-powered cars for EVs, and they want to make sure they're involved in some way. And the way to weasel in is through lithium. Lithium is a key component, of course, to lithium-ion batteries that are used in EVs. The problem is the U.S. is a tiny player in the global lithium market compared to South America, Australia, and primarily China. So as the race to scoop up lithium for EVs heats up, Exxon is making a bet that it's made in America lithium will eventually be the kind that goes into the Ford F-150 Lightning or electric Mustang. Toby, if Exxon is getting into lithium production, it can only lead to one question. Is lithium the new oil? <laughs> what, what you call oil black gold is lithium s silver gold, I guess. I don't know what lithium looks like. <laughs> it looks, it's definitely sparkly. I mean, this is just smart business from Exxon. This to me is what the future of decarbonization looks like. It's not these big splashy announcements that by 2050 will be carbon neutral. It's investing in infrastructure that actually leads towards a future where 
you know, the combustion engine isn't the main form of power for cars anymore. So when I hear that Exxon plans to supply lithium for well over a million EVs per year and become the leading supplier of the metal by 2030, I think they actually will because it's in their best business interest to ramp up their lithium mining capabilities. Right, but... Uh all our listeners probably remember only a few weeks ago as Exxon made a $60 billion purchase of Pioneer Natural Resources to get, grab a share of the oil fields in West Texas. So, and I think this deal is only worth $100 million. So the scale of how much it's drilling for fossil fuels mm. and the scale of how much it is making a play in the lithium market are exponentially different, it's, and the lithium play is much smaller. It's much smaller. It is. It's a hedge of their right. bets. It's not like they're not betting the future of the company. But again, I I still think it is. Uh, it represents meaningful progress. I was also digging into how the heck you actually mine lithium because yeah. it's kind of fun. You actually use conventional oil and gas drilling methods, but instead of oil, you're trying to reach uh, reach this saltwater lithium-rich saltwater that's ten thousand feet underground, and then you use something called direct lithium extraction technology to separate the lithium from the salt water. You used to have to do this thing where you would have these large evaporation pools where you would just wait for the salt water to evaporate and then mine the lithium from there. Now it's a lot more uh, uh, complicated and a lot more efficient in how you can extract the lithium. So I just thought it was funny that Exxon can use their existing oil and gas techniques to get to salt water. Yeah. It is a liquid that's underground, so I thought that was interesting. Yeah, and then just to wrap this up, uh, there is going to be a global race for lithium, and right now uh, prices have fallen as more supplies come on the market, but as more EVs get produced in the coming decades, you need lithium. So uh, there is an arms race right now to get your hands on lithium. Tesla, like it's done everything else, is bringing, bringing lithium production in-house, and it opened a huge facility in, or it started uh, product, or it started to build a huge facility in Texas in May because it just knows that lithium will be so important. Elon Musk has called it one of the major choke points in building electric vehicles. So the race is on to secure lithium supplies. And uh, maybe it'll happen in the U.S., but it seems like most of it is happening abroad right now, and that's not what U.S. companies like to see. Yeah, but the U.S. did just find what may be the largest lithium deposit on Earth back in September on the border of Oregon and Nevada. So it may hold 20 to 40 million metric tons of extractable lithium. So, again, you, if there's an arms race and we just found maybe the biggest maybe. supply. Like it, bullish, it on, bullish on southwest Arkansas, by the way. Yeah, I know. Nor up. Northwest Arkansas is booming. It's one of the boomingest regions. Uh, that's a word. Uh, <laughs> Uh, in the country. Now, Southwest Arkansas likely will have a lot of th thousands of jobs created because of these. It, they're really abandoned oil drills yeah. uh, wells that are being taken over by lithium production. So it seems like uh, a somewhat productive use of what is now a industrial wasteland. Yeah, shout out Southwest Arkansas. Never thought I'd say those words. It's Tuesday, which means we are so back with another edition of everyone's favorite segment, Toby's Trends. Neil, this one is for anyone out there who just wants to get away but doesn't want to mortgage the house that they may or may not be able to afford to do it. It's called travel duping, where dupe is a reference to a cheaper, more generic alternative that still resembles the real thing. In the context of travel, that means opting for a more under-the-radar doppelganger of a more va popular vacation spot. Expedia actually put together a list of recommended dupes, so pay attention at home listeners. This could save you a buck or two. Instead of going to Nashville, try out Memphis and trade in country music for some soul. Instead of going transatlantic to find a striking body of water in a historic old town in Geneva, keep it in North America and try out Quebec City for the same dose of both. And finally, if London is screaming your name,
game. Try Liverpool instead. If it was good, if it was good enough for the Beatles, it's good enough for you. Neil, when you're not sitting at this desk with me, you're a pretty astute traveler yourself. Are you on board with this dupe trend? I think it's great. I think people have been doing these this for years, but you know, it's been dubbed dupe now because of whatever TikTok. <laughs> yeah. Um, but no, I think going to a cheaper destination rather than these major cities that are super expensive and only becoming even more expensive is a great thing to do. Go off the beaten path a little bit. Often these more regional centers have more interesting culture and more of a local flair than the major metropoles that are going on uh, around the world. So I put together a few of my <laughs> I dudes. knew you would, yes. I just, you know, I just had to. So please tell me, listeners, if this is a good idea or not, uh, or if you like these or not. Philadelphia for New York. Nope. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Just going to give that one an X okay. right there. Portland, Maine for Boston. This one is right? true. I'm a Portland guy through and through. Okay. Fort Collins instead of Denver. Okay. I've never been to Fort, Fort Collins. Fort Collins is sick. But I do love Denver. Okay. And then Flagstaff, Arizona for literally any other mountain town out west. Yeah. It's great for training, too. If you want to train for an ultra marathon, go to Flagstaff. Right. Super, super elevated. And this one... Kind of random. Ocean Springs, Mississippi, instead of Charleston, South Carolina. I'm just going to take your word for that one. Ocean Springs is really cool. <laughs> okay, it's, it's kind of like an hour east of New Orleans, uh, but it's a beautiful downtown. Super cool. Uh, much cheaper than Charleston. I'm taking notes. Let's do a dupe tour, Neil. We just go to all those places you mentioned. Okay, for our final story, how much would you pay to know what's going on inside your pet's head? If your answer was 550 bucks for 90 minutes, you're in luck. Because that's what a pet psychic goes for these days. People are increasingly booking sessions with these animal communicators to figure out certain behavioral issues or even learn about their pet's preferences for end-of-life care. The idea is these pet psychics can communicate with your animal on a level you can't. So you pay these folks to get inside their tiny, furry, adorable little heads. You know, the craziest part about this to me is that a lot of these times these sessions are being conducted over the phone. Dawn Allen, a 48-year-old from Western Mass, does 30 phone sessions a week where she apparently connects telepathically with the animal and lets you know what makes them happy or if they are feeling anxious about anything. And she makes bank for it. She charges $85 for those sessions, which comes out to $2,550 a week. Neil, regardless of whether you believe in the skills of these animal communicators or not, it's a heck of a business. Uh, of course <laughs> it's a heck of a business to prey on people's anxieties around their pet. I mean, there's so many surveys that come out just how much people value their pet and it's part of their family. Uh, about, half of, about half of US pet owners think of their pets as a much a part of their family as a human member. So you're just preying on these, uh, on these anxieties. So it, it makes me not happy. I know. And then the other part of the, uh, another survey that speaks to this trend is that a 2022 YouGov survey found that 67% of Americans said that they have had a paranormal experience. So you combine a massive influx of these pet lovers with a growing majority of people who do believe in kind of the psychic realms and the paranormal realms. And of course you have a recipe for these pet psychics popping off. This was wild. The one of, one of these, uh, I should say, they like to be called animal communicators. <laughs> and in this article in the Wall Street Journal that we're drawing from, they said that this is growing mainstream. You know, a, a few years ago, they were considered fringe, uh, fringe yeah. lunatics, and now they're going mainstream. I don't know whether that's true or not. Obviously, they're going to say that. But in one episode, uh, one of these animal communicators found out that the dog didn't like their nickname of Big Al. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> it's actually so cute. The dog's name is Alby, and this video went super viral because apparently the animal communicator was told by the dog that I I don't like my nickname, and she, and she said that the dog didn't tell her what his nickname was, and then she later came to find out that the nickname was Big Al, and he didn't like it because he thought it made him think seem large and overweight. Just adorable though to think about Big Al being stressed out about his his nickname. So the best part about this business, as Morning Brew writer Dave Lozo pointed out yesterday is that the dogs can't tell you you're right. wrong. It's actually the perfect psychic pers or uh, kind of target because humans all also fall for psychics all the time because if you get one thing right, you're like, oh my God, right. they're totally right. The dog can't tell you anything. So I think it's actually a genius move. And if you get something t kind of right one time, then you're locked in for life. So I don't know. I'm, I'm all in on the dog. All right, we have psychics. to wrap it up there. What a business. <laughs> have a wonderful rest of your day, everyone. Before we close up shop, I do have to apologize to the entire state <laughs> of Texas. Yesterday, I mistakenly said that Texas A&M was in West Texas, when of course it is in East Texas. Look, sometimes a New England boy mixes up <laughs> Lubbock and College Station when trying to sound articulate on a podcast. I'm only human. I won't mess that up again, I promise. But if you have any more beef with us or want to share other thoughts on the show, you can write into our email morningbrewdaily at morningbrew.com. Let's roll the credits. Emily Milliron is our editor and producer. Samantha Velez is our associate producer. Yuchenna Waogu is our technical director. Billy Menino is on audio. Hair and makeup is very proud of my haircut, which has been called both a sleigh and tight. Devin Emery is our chief content officer, and our show is a production of Morning Brew. Great show today, Neil. Let's run it back tomorrow.